Hello, I'm your reader, Dale Finnegan, and it is time to celebrate our birthdays here at IRIS. For today, Friday, May 8th, 2020, we have five birthdays. Steve Turner of Glenwood, happy birthday to you. Harold Dennis of Oskaloosa, we wish you a happy birthday. And happy birthday to Shirley La Follette in Boone. Vera Rubin of Carlisle, happy birthday to you. And finally, Phyllis Judge of Bettendorf, we wish you a happy, happy birthday. If today is your birthday and you didn't hear your name, give us a call so we can be sure to get your birthday on our list. Now here's a reminder that our program schedule has changed dramatically so that we can get as much local information to as many listeners as possible. The Fort Dodge Messenger will be read at 7 a.m. Monday through Friday. The Mason City Globe Gazette will be read at 8 a.m. Monday through Friday. Your Des Moines Register will continue to be read from 9 a.m. to noon each day. The Cedar Rapids Gazette will be read at noon, seven days a week. The Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier will be read at 1 p.m. seven days a week. The Dubuque Telegraph Herald will be read at 2 p.m. Monday through Friday. The Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil will be read at 3 p.m. Monday through Friday. The Sioux City Journal will be read at 4 p.m. seven days a week. The Ames Tribune will be read at 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. And the Midweek Shopping Cart will be read each week on Wednesday at 9 p.m. We will stay with this schedule until further notice. Now let's get back to the news with our first story from the USA Today. The headline here, U.S. Shelves CDC Guide to Reopening Country. The subtitle, Agency's Diminished Public Role, Stirs Concern, and it's written by Jason Deeren and Mike Stabe of the Associated Press. The Trump administration has shelved a document created by the nation's top disease investigators with step-by-step advice to local authorities on how and when to reopen restaurants and other public places during the still-raging coronavirus outbreak. The 17-page report by a Centers for Disease Control and Prevention team titled Guidance for Implementing the Opening Up America Again Framework was researched and written to help faith healers, business owners, educators, and state and local officials as they begin to reopen. It was supposed to be published May 1st, but agency scientists were told the guidance, quote, would never see the light of day, according to a CDC official. The official was not authorized to talk to reporters and spoke to the Associated Press on the condition of anonymity. The Trump administration has been closely controlling the release of guidance and information during the spread of a new coronavirus. Traditionally, it has been the CDC's role to guide the public and local officials during public health crises. During this one, however, the CDC has not had a regular pandemic-related news briefing in nearly two months. CDC Director Dr. Robert Redfield has been a member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, but often absent from public events. CDC has always been the public health agency Americans turn to in a time of crisis, said Dr. Howard Koh, a a Harvard professor and former health official in the Obama administration during the H1N1 swine flu pandemic in 2009. The standard in a crisis is to turn to them for the latest data and latest guidance and the latest press briefing. That has not occurred, 
and everyone sees that. The Trump administration has sought to put the onus on states to handle COVID-19 response. This approach to managing the pandemic has been reflected in President Donald Trump's public statements from the assertion that he isn't responsible for the country's lackluster early testing efforts to his description last week of the federal government's role as a supplier of last resort for states in need of testing aid. The rejected reopening guidance contained detailed advice for making site-specific decisions related to reopening schools, restaurants, summer camps, churches, daycare centers, and other institutions. It had been widely shared within the CDC and included detailed decision trees or flowcharts to be used by local officials to think through different scenarios. The White House's own Opening Up America Again guidelines released last month were more vague than the CDC's unpublished report. Still, behind the scenes, CD scientists are working to get information to local governments. States that directly reach out to the CDC can tap guidance that has been prepared but that the White House has not released. Joblessness reaches 33 million in seven weeks. This article is written by Sharice Jones. In less than two months, the number of Americans losing their jobs and filing for unemployment has reached staggering heights. As the economy reels from coronavirus shutdowns, more than 33 million people have applied for benefits in seven weeks, a tally that signals what is almost certain to be the worst unemployment rate ever seen when the government reports that figure Friday. Roughly 3.2 million people filed for unemployment last week alone, the Labor Department said Thursday. That was fewer than the 3.8 million who filed the week before and down from the all-time high of 6.86 million applications in late March. The number who sought assistance through March and April exceeds all the jobs created since the Great Recession. April is expected to be the grimmest month so far. Unemployment is expected to have spiked to a record 15% to 20%, a devastating confirmation of the toll the coronavirus pandemic has taken on the economy. At the low end, the jobs losses in April will most certainly have canceled out all of the gains in the recovery from the Great Recession, Elise Gold, a senior economist with Economic Policy Institute, wrote in a blog post. At the high end, we will have returned to a level of unemployment last experienced in the mid-1990s, canceling out all the gains in the employment over the last 25 years. B of A Global Research forecasts that 22 million non-farm, non-farm jobs were lost in April, boosting the unemployment rate to 15%. Oxford Economics expected the numbers to be even worse, 28 million jobs shed and an unemployment rate of 17%. The April report may still not give a full picture of the nation's unemployment because traditional measures used to count those who are out of work are insufficient to measure the effects of the coronavirus pandemic. For instance, workers are typically counted as unemployed if they're out of a job and trying to find another. But many Americans have been unable to look for work while so many businesses are shut down. Typical measures for tallying the unemployed would not reflect the number of people who can't work because they've been infected by the virus or need to stay home to care for children whose schools or daycare centers were closed because of the pandemic. Though dozens of states are starting to let some businesses reopen, layoffs and furloughs continue as wary wary consumers reduce their spending 
and local and state governments eye job cuts amid dwindling tax revenue. But the number of layoffs may become less severe. The initial claims count has now moved down in five straight weeks, suggesting that the number of layoffs has been declining lately following the surge that took place in late March. Daniel Silver, an economist with J.P. Morgan, wrote in an investor's note, claims should finally slip below $1 million by mid-June. If the current rate of decline continues, Ian Shepardson, chief economist for Pantheon Macroeconomics, said in a note. Senators ask for work visa freeze. This article comes from Nicholas Wu. Four Republican senators have asked President Donald Trump to suspend further issuance of guest worker visas until next year or until employment has returned to normal levels because of the pandemic's impact on the economy. The senators, Tom Cotton of Arkansas, Ted Cruz of Texas, Josh Hawley of Missouri, and Chuck Grassley of Iowa, urged in a letter dated May 7th, first reported on by Politico, that the visa suspensions would be critical to protecting American workers as our economy gets back on its feet. They requested a halt to all non-immigrant guest worker visas for 60 days, with exceptions granted for agriculture and other critical industries. After that, the senators want a halt placed on the following categories. H-2B visas for non-agricultural seasonal workers like ski resort employees, H-1B visas for quote, specialty positions, end quote, optional practice training, which extends student visas after graduation, EB-5 investor visas, which the senators said force American students to compete against international students in a tight job market. The suspensions would give younger Americans and recent college graduates the opportunity to apply for jobs that might otherwise go to immigrants. Also from Nicholas Wu, here is another article, short, Trump wants border wall painted black. President Donald Trump has requested that the border wall, one of his signature campaign promises, be painted black, a proposal that could cost hundreds of millions of dollars, according to a new report. The Washington Post reported Wednesday that Trump sought the painting in order to make the wall look more imposing and too hot to touch during the summer. Quoting anonymous administration officials, the Post reported Trump told his senior advisor and son-in-law, Jared Kushner, to assess cost for the wall painting plan. According to estimates obtained by the Post, the cost of painting the wall black would range from $500 million for acrylic paint to over $3 billion for a powder coating on the wall. The Democratic National Committee slammed the report, saying Trump would rather let states go bankrupt than provide them more money to pay their teachers, police officers, and firefighters, and fund services for the poor and elderly, end quote. The White House and the Department of Homeland Security did not respond to requests for comment. And from the bottom of the page, here are the Short Nation and World Watch articles. Dateline, Washington. Trump valet has coronavirus. President again tests negative. A member of the military serving as one of President Donald Trump's valets tested positive Wednesday for the coronavirus, the White House said Thursday. It said Trump and Vice President Mike Pence tested negative for the virus Wednesday and Thursday and remain in good health. 
It marked the first known instance where a person who has come in close proximity to the president has tested positive, since several people present at his private Florida club were diagnosed with COVID-19 in early March in Oklahoma City. Shooting over dining area closure hurts three McDonald's workers. Three McDonald's employees suffered gunshot wounds when a customer opened fire because she was angry that the dining area was closed because of the pandemic, police said Thursday. Gloricia Woody, 32, was in custody after the Wednesday night shooting on four counts of assault and battery with a deadly weapon, said police captain Larry Withrow. Police said Woody returned to the restaurant with a handgun after being forced out by workers, one of whom was injured in the altercation with the suspect. Dateline, Washington. Virus hospitalization is new barrier to military enlistment. The Defense Department has begun begun barring the enlistment of military recruits who have been hospitalized for the coronavirus unless they get a special medical waiver. Applicants who have tested positive for the virus but did not require hospitalization will be allowed to enlist, as long as all health and other requirements are met. Those recruits who tested positive won't be allowed to begin the enlistment process until 28 days after the diagnosis, and they'll be required to submit all medical documentation. And finally, from Hyderabad, India. Chemical leak at LG plant in India kills 11, about 1,000 ill. A gas leak at a chemical factory owned by a South Korean company early Thursday left at least 11 people dead and about 1,000 struggling to breathe. The chemical styrene, used to make plastic and rubber, leaked from the LG polymers plant in the city of Vishakapatnam, while workers were preparing to restart the facility after a lockdown was eased, officials said. Videos and photos showed dozens of people lying unconscious in the streets, arms open wide, with white froth trailing from their mouths. Turning to the front page of the national edition of the USA Today, there is a long article by our local reporter, Courtney Crowder of the Des Moines Register. The title, In an Empty Iowa Mall, Chef Toils to Feed Souls. Inspired by her American dream, faithful customers keep her afloat. The dateline is Des Moines. From her padded stool perch in the corner of her restaurant, Vietnam Cafe owner Brenda Tran reigns over the food court. Part mama bear, part perpetual party host. On a typical day, Tran watches new customers settle into tables and chow down, sometimes running into the dining room to hold impromptu lessons on the finer points of Vietnamese cuisine. Swirl your pho noodles like spaghetti. Lean down and slurp the broth. She chats with her mall walkers as they nosh on her special Vietnamese egg sandwiches. After losing her father a decade ago, she considers them her American parents, an honor they take to heart. She beckons over the, quote, kids, teens either suspended or cutting class from the local high school. She tells them her story, how she survived the Vietnam War and came to Iowa as a refugee, not knowing a lick of English with just a change of clothes and a head full of recipes. She tells them there is no easy path in life, that persistence, taking the ladder rung by rung, is how they will succeed. There's the business lunch crowd, the moms after yoga, the kids on first dates. All are welcome at Tran's table, where a bowl of pho is served with a side of stories. 
Egg rolls are lined with decades of advice, and entrees are meant to fill the soul in equal measure to the stomach. Every single bowl of my food has a little piece of my heart in it, Tran says. When I cook for people, I give them my heart. These people are so much a part of her daily routine that if she squints hard enough, she can almost see them in their regular seats, Tran says. But no one is out there. Just an endless sea of empty tables, chairs removed weeks ago to discourage loitering. As the coronavirus swept to the country, shopping centers were among the first establishments ordered closed, and Merle Hay Mall in Des Moines, home to the unforgettable Vietnam Cafe, was no exception. With malls long on the decline and restaurant margins tight, the pandemic will hit food court eateries hard, sure to shutter some beloved spots forever. Weathering years of retail struggle to keep her cafe dream alive, Tran has her bills stacked up like Jenga blocks. But with her business down 80% after five weeks of restrictions, she knew COVID-19 could finally be the block to topple her livelihood. Yet Tran decided she wasn't going to go down without a fight, especially after glancing at the calendar on a recent Saturday and noticing the date, April 25. Trapped in the mall alone, Tran, 50, tapped away on her iPhone. Before posting, Tran said a quick prayer, hoping people would read her story and be moved to order. In quotes, 34 years ago today, I landed in Des Moines, Iowa, she wrote. For me to be who I am today, it wasn't easy at all. Tran gets to the mall around 8 a.m., three hours before opening. A small, slight woman who radiates energy like a larger-than-life Las Vegas neon sign, Tran heaves pots nearly half her size onto the stove. As she starts rolling spring rolls and warming walks, she returns to the range, making tiny adjustments to the heat underneath this pot or that one without a glance at what's in them. She can feel what each pot needs, she says, a trick she learned as an eight-year-old battling the flames of a makeshift stovetop that she used during years of hunger and hardship after the war. With her mother and two older sisters working and their father missing, the family was separated by bombing during the war, Tran, the middle of five children, was charged with scraping together what little food she could. The nightly chorus of her siblings' growling stomachs kept her awake, turning solutions over and over in her head. Hitching a ride on a bike, Tran spent her family's precious few coins on a bag of sugar, puzzling her sisters. But she had a plan. She melted the sugar, added flour, and rolled candy balls, traveling from village to village offering a trade. Sweets for rice. I was one of those kids like, let me do it, let me try it, Tran says. If I see someone in the water, it's my reaction always to jump in the water to help. For four years, the family sustained. No matter what happened, Tran fanned the stovetop flames, feeding her family. Until a letter written in a strange, angular language arrived in their village. A priest translated for them. Their father helped the Americans during the war, winning a seat on a ship to San Diego. He'd gone to school, become an electrical technician, and moved to Iowa. Now he wanted them to join him in America. Almost seven years of paperwork later, on April 25, 1986, the family touched down in Des Moines. Tran, then 17, went to high school in the morning and worked cleaning offices at night until her hands cracked. On weekends, she interpreted for the public hospital system, eventually landing a permanent job. 
With a life of school, work, repeat, the only time she could slow down, could take those deep, long breaths of relaxation, was during family meals. Her father would make his delicious egg noodles, or her sisters would goad her into whipping up her famous spicy soup, and they'd talk, remembering where they came from and imagining where they were going. Her dream future was always the same. Her in a kitchen, moving from walk to stove to table, surrounded by people enjoying her food, chit-chatting, sharing, smiling. In her fantasy, she cooked not just to feed people, but to serve their spirit. As trans cook take over prep work for the day, she organizes receipts, collects order slips, and pauses for a devotion in front of what she calls her angels. Funeral programs from services for deceased mall walkers, fellow vendors, and a beloved priest pepper the walls near her padded stool perch. In the center is a big photo of her daddy. They are my engine, she says. For 18 years, Tran pinched pennies as she interpreted at the hospital. She left in 2008 to run a Chinese restaurant and help the owner sell it a few years later. Looking for her next landing spot, she found herself walking the mall in 2010, passing consignment stores, strolling through Kohl's, and arriving at a large lighted food court. Near the corner, a small vacant store stall appeared. Like mana from heaven, she said. Could this be the place for her dream restaurant? She called her father. Will Americans eat our food? He asked. I say, we need to teach them our culture, she said. I learned their culture. Now I want to teach them. He was persuaded enough that he planned to help after the September 1 opening. He'd walk the mall in the morning, the recently retired 70-year-old told her, and wash dishes after lunch. On August 22nd, her father died during mass. A heart attack, she was told. She thought about walking away from her down payment and giving up. But cooking was her north star, the only constant in her life's vicissitudes. And her father wouldn't want her to stop, not after all he suffered so his family could have a better life. She pinned up his picture and rolled up her sleeves. In the early days, Tran devised a way to be in two places at once, by coming early to cook her food and leaving her employees to serve lunch while she painted nails at a store in the mall. She built the business day by day and mouth by mouth, she said. Regular mall walkers were intimidated by her menu at first. Slowly, she tempted them to try one special, then another. They all hook with my food now, she said. But the mall struggled. An anchor store closed. Storefronts stood empty. So Tran decided to embrace her personality. People who ate at Vietnam Cafe weren't going to get just great food. They would have the experience of eating at Tran's home. She brought in big decorative bowls. She wandered the tables, chatting. She opened a Facebook page and took photos of her food and her customers. She started an all-you-can-eat first Friday buffet, an event known to bring in 300 to 500 people each month. Sometimes people will come here, eat lunch, take a nap, wake up, and eat dinner, she said. But you know, that's fine, because they are enjoying two meals with me. Friends ask her all the time why she won't start a standalone restaurant, but she loves the seasonality of the mall, how kids' laughter fills the halls when school's out, and the warmth and excitement of the holiday season. When the mall is alive with people, she says, it's almost as if she's breathing. But then COVID-19 hit. Business dropped. One day she made $200. 
taking barely anything home, and the next just $110, not even enough to pay her workers. Sitting in the deafening silence, she convinced herself that if people only knew her story, knew how much love had gone into the Vietnam cafe, they'd order again, so she posted. And the response flooded in immediately. Some shared memories of her store, others praised her food, and still others just wanted to honor her triumphs and challenges. She stayed up until 3.30 a.m. reading each comment. At 10.45 a.m., about 15 minutes before opening, the phone starts ringing. Her, her first call of the day, Tran makes a beeline for her perch in the corner near the cash register. Vietnam Cafe, she says. Hi, Jean. More pho today? Since posting the story on her American anniversary, her business has come back with a fury. She devised a way for customers to order at the counter using an employee entrance, writing Vietnam Cafe Pickup with an arrow and stars dotting the eyes on her kitchen door. Last week, a customer sent a card with a check for half her federal stimulus. Our family's doing fine, the card read. So please accept this as a gift and a sign of appreciation for all the joy you have brought us. Her cousin comes by when he can, can to carry food to waiting cars, his sandals flopping furiously as he shuttles hot soup to hungry customers. Her niece, who hopes to be a doctor one day, backs her up on the phones when not online learning. All the help means Tran can jump back into the kitchen, back into Brenda's world. To her, food and the cooking of it has an almost divine power to give life, to comfort, to heal. On her best days, she has seen her banh mis and beef teriyaki do all three. Food is soul, she says. And at Vietnam Cafe, there's a touch of hers in every bowl. Let's go ahead now and turn to the opinion page from the Des Moines Register. The first article here is a Your Turn piece from guest columnist Robert A. Cook, and the title, We, Not God, Will Triumph Over Coronavirus. And here is what Mr. Cook has to say. I am an atheist. I have been an atheist almost my entire adult life. I am also an optimist, though it does seem harder to maintain in this age of COVID-19. The coronavirus upended our lives and filled us all with fear and uncertainty. New cases and the growing death toll make headlines every single day. It seems like tragedy is the air we breathe. Nonetheless, I look around and see compelling reasons to hope for a better future. All over the world, people are working together to help their families, neighbors, and complete strangers survive this and come out stronger. We need to look no further than the pages of the Des Moines Register for examples of human beings uniting to fight the pandemic threat through science and cooperation. Scientists are studying the virus to slow its spread, provide promising new treatments, and create an effective vaccine in record time. Faced with critical supply shortages, Iowa quilters donate homemade masks, makers 3D print face shields for healthcare workers, and local businesses join forces to make free hand sanitizer for state operations. A Beaverdale family fills their little free library with toilet paper and gloves instead of books. An Ankeny fourth grader started her own business and donates earnings to the Food Bank of Iowa. What do these stories have in common? They are about people informed by science 
working together to make the world a better place. They act selflessly and with empathy because it's the right thing to do, not because they are commanded to do by a Bible verse. They know that we all gain when we help each other. That is humanism, folks. It appeals to both my optimism and my love of reason. I want to make this world a better place. If I respect my neighbors and help them out when they need it, then they will return the favor. It is a moral calculation based entirely on reason, empathy, and our shared experiences. No gods required. Contrast that with Greg Baker's view of humanity in his Easter op-ed. He claims, without evidence, that we are to blame for all disease, viruses, plagues, famine, poverty, sickness, crime, and death. It's all our fault because Eve, made of Adam's rib, listened to a talking snake and ate a magic fruit. All the subsequent pain, misfortune, and death follows inevitably from all-powerful God's incomprehensible plan for salvation. Baker wants us to believe that we are born broken because we are born human. That, quote, each of us has amassed an unpayable debt with God, end quote, and therefore deserve eternity of pain in hell. Our only hope of a better life depends on how hard we pray for forgiveness from the omnipotent God who made us that way. Now that is depressing. It is also false. Every story I mentioned above demonstrates human ingenuity, reason, compassion, and goodwill. That is the source of my optimism. We can and will beat the coronavirus. If we apply those same traits to global warming, warming, chronic poverty, and a host of other problems, we can solve them too. Let's give credit where it is due, to the human beings who actually do the work and sacrifice to make all our lives better. And again, the author of this piece is Robert A. Cook, who is activism chair for atheists and free thinkers. The article at the bottom of the page is another Your Turn piece, and it comes from Joseph C. Ugrin. The title, Gap Year? Question mark. In high-earning fields, it's costly. The COVID-19 outbreak has turned the college experience upside down as students have been removed from dorms to stop the spread of the disease and face-to-face classes have been moved to remote delivery. Potential first-year and transfer students are being encouraged to consider a gap year and delay enrollment until the educational environment returns to normal. What is not commonly discussed in the media is the cost of postponing education and making progress towards a future career. My expertise is in accounting. For potential accounting majors, a gap year comes at a high financial cost. Like many professional and STEM fields, accounting majors graduate into a market where jobs are plentiful, salaries are high, and wage growth is strong. This analysis could be performed for other professional fields that require a college degree and have wage increases due to promotion and experience that typically outpace the national wage growth. Future teachers, actuaries, engineers, and more should also consider the cost of delaying their education before making a choice. A gap year delays a student's graduation, entrance into the profession, and chance to earn a salary by one year. The student's salary will also lag permanently, and the cost of that lag compounds over time. Would you believe me if I said that delaying an accounting education by only one year 
Would cost a student over a quarter million dollars in earnings over a lifetime? It does. According to Robert Hoff's 2020 salary survey for accounting and finance professionals, accounting graduates who take jobs at a large accounting firm generally earn around $60,000 as a new associate. New associates who perform well quickly progress. They commonly earn annual salaries over six figures within five years. And the opportunity to become a partner typically takes place around year 15, and that is when big money is made. Let me show you an example of how delaying this opportunity can be very costly. Let us assume a student receives a job at a large public accounting firm with a $60,000 starting salary and average annual wages increase by a very conservative 6%. Not everyone makes partner. Until age 62. Let us assume the starting salary for a student taking the gap year would start at around $61,800 during the year after the gap to account for 3% average wage growth. The student taking a gap year would have the opportunity to work full time during the year off from school, but the average wages for a high school graduate with little to no college experience are low. For argument's sake, let us assume 40 hours per week at $12 per hour for 50 weeks. Let us also assume an average personal income tax rate of 25% for all years in the analysis. A five year graduation is assumed. The results show that accounting students who take a gap year will lose out on $225,591 of net earnings after taxes over their career. The cost in current dollars is $80,614. The question for potential accounting majors considering a gap year is Is it worth $80,000 to you? Again, that piece was written by Joseph C. Ugrin, a CPA who is the Deloitte Professor of Accounting and head of the Department of Accounting at the University of Northern Iowa. The political cartoon, along with the letters to the editor today, is from Bill Bramhall of the Tribune Content Agency. It's a sketch like drawing of a TV news desk, a fairly close up shot of the news desk. You can only see the reporter and the back of the cameraman who has on headphones and a microphone set and is, and is pointing the camera at the desk. The reporter in the sketch is a mosquito or a fly, perhaps it looks like,、um, with the big bug eyes and the wings. And it's holding a、uh, piece of paper and speaking into the microphone as it says. And now for a welcome break from pandemic news. I'll leave you to figure that one out. On to the letters from the to the editor. Our first one is from Amy Shaw of West Des Moines. And the title given is We Will Worship on Own Terms. Vice President Mike Pence, I am writing to you as the senior minister of First Unitarian Church, Des Moines, because you are coming here to convince local faith leaders to open our churches and places of worship. Here in Iowa, our death toll is climbing rapidly and our hospitals are filling. Our meatpacking plants are hotbeds of infection and our food chains have been threatened. The sick often cannot be tested or even admitted for care. Our governor has recklessly opened parts of our state, forcing some businesses to open without the ability to protect their staff 
and pushing high-risk staff to choose between risking their lives at their jobs or losing their jobs without being able to seek unemployment. While the wealthy and powerful continue to work from home, the most essential workers among us are sent to die in the name of corporate and state greed. You come here within 14 days of entering the Mayo Clinic without a mask during a global pandemic, and you ask to speak to faith leaders. You ask to speak to ministers, to people who have the trust of our congregations. You will ask us to trust your judgment, to open our churches in the face of all science and reason. I want to ask you why I would trust you when you have abundantly demonstrated your failure to grasp the simplest concepts of virology, public health, basic science, or human decency. I want to ask how dare you expect me to betray the precious trust of the beloved people who have called me as their minister. How dare you ask me to open the church, calling some in my beloved community forward to infection and death when they could have remained safely at home. Our decision to open our church will be guided by science, public health information, and reason, not by political or economic pressure. Again, that letter was from Amy Shaw of West Des Moines. And the other letter today comes from Dwayne Mortensen of Ankeny. It's got the title, Reynolds Should Step Out of Trump's Shadow. Dwayne says, I have been watching Governor Kim Reynolds' coronavirus updates just about every day, and I am convinced of one thing. She is not really interested in seriously testing all Iowans. She is absolutely focused on getting our economy opened as fast as she can because that is what President Trump wants her to do. If she were serious about testing, she would be doing everything she possibly could to get enough testing supplies and a process to actually test every citizen in Iowa as fast as possible. Reynolds keeps telling us that anyone who wants to be tested can be tested, but just try to jump through all of the hoops to actually make that happen. I think she is afraid that if everyone would get tested, the results would prove how widespread this virus is among Iowans, and it would make her efforts to force opening up that much more difficult. We can only responsibly and safely open up Iowa when we know who has this virus. If Reynolds honestly thinks that Iowans will do what is right with social distancing and wearing masks, Without an enforced mandate from her, she needs only to drive around to the parks and stores this weekend. Again, that letter was from Dwayne Mortensen of Ankeny. I'll turn now to the USA Today's opinion page, where the article here is by Dr. Bonnie Milas, and the title, Remembering My Sons Lost to Opioids. On Mother's Day, we must share our stories. Mother's Day this year is both poignant and painful for me. Over the last two and a half years, in the midst of the opioid epidemic, I have lost both my 27-year-old son and my 31-year-old son to accidental drug overdoses. I have no remaining children. This is acutely agonizing given that in my profession as an anesthesiologist, I routinely handle large doses of opioids and rescue patients every day. As I look back at my motherhood, I have had a profound list of experiences, experiences which may not be the ones shared so openly by other mothers. 
I have unknowingly driven my car in dangerous areas of surrounding cities so my son could get drugs. Unwittingly given my son's money that he used to pay off drug dealers. Unknowingly paid Uber drivers shuttling a dealer to drop off drugs just steps away from our home. I have had my credit card used to Venmo money to pay drug dealers, unbeknownst to me. I have chased my son down the street in my bathrobe in an effort to prevent him from trying to score drugs and have wrestled with my son while he had a full syringe in his hand getting ready to inject heroin. I have seen my son dipping out and stop breathing. And I have done mouth to nose resuscitation because my son's mouth could not be pried open a handful of times. Twice I have done CPR on my son, which is by far the most terrifying thing I have ever done. I have had a supply of Narcan in my house and administered it multiple times, have removed a bathroom door from its hinges to rescue my son, and have physically restrained my son's limbs to prevent him from jumping out of a second-story window when he was crazed after being Narcan revived. I have even been to court, have had the judge ask, is there a family member with this individual today? And I have stood and answered, yes, I'm his mother. I have had the entire courtroom turn to look at me with some degree of judgment. As distressing as these memories are to recall and share, that distress is not what resonates in my mind, nor is it how I remember my boys. My younger son, the mechanical engineer, was playful and loving, with a childlike sense of humor. He could make me laugh like no one else. We could be in the middle of an argument and he would simply smirk or contort his face and we would both lose our composure in laughter. He was quick-witted and good with a one-liner. He was always entertaining. My oldest was bright and determined. I loved watching him wrestle or play soccer, and I was always the loudest mom in the stands, a fact which embarrassed us both equally. I was so proud of my student athlete of the year as he graduated high school, then college, then medical school. We liked to discuss surgical cases at the family dinner table, which usually didn't digest well with the other diners, but his intelligence always challenged and impressed me. I miss them both dearly and think of them every day. I still expect to see them bounding down the stairs or standing in front of the fridge pondering what to eat next. I would gladly relive all the tumultuous times over again just to have them alive today. Yet I know this will never happen. I also know that this Mother's Day there are so many other moms who have a similar list of experiences and who are also grieving the loss of their son or daughter. I believe I speak for many mothers when I say that we must not be silent. If we are to begin to heal as a society, we must dispel stigma by coming forward and sharing our stories. By doing so, we can make substance use disorder part of everyday conversation without the fear of judgment or shame. I ask, Please be mindful of negative things that might be thought or said about drug addicts. If they aren't empath empathetic and kind words, then perhaps just listen. As my own mother often said, if you can't say something nice, then don't say anything at all. Listen to the fact that we are all at risk for addiction, a brain chemistry disease that is not controlled by willpower. 
After the passing of my sons, I have kept a loud ticking watch in my closet that my one son wore on his last day. I like to think of that tick as his heartbeat, his memory. An odd thing for a mom to find so comforting. That piece was written by Dr. Bonnie Milas, a professor of clinical anesthesiology and critical care medicine in the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. The opinions expressed here are solely her own. Turning to today's debate on the opinion page, the topic is digital divide, and the Our View title is In COVID-19 Crisis, Broadband Access is a Lifeline. During the Great Depression, people waited in bread lines for sustenance. In today's economic crisis, the internet is often the pathway for relief. Online is where people try to keep or find work, how they see their doctor or apply for jobless benefits, how they order food and supplies, where they find solace through faith or laughter through entertainment. For many, it's the way they connect to friends and family and stay abreast of the news. For millions of children and university students, high-speed internet is their only means of continuing an education in a time of remote learning. Except tens of millions of people in America are effectively denied a place in this modern-day breadline because they can't afford or don't have access to high-speed internet. Most are in rural areas. And the problem is particularly egregious within the nation's tribal lands, where nearly a third of Native Americans lack broadband access. The result is that people seem to vanish like 4,500 students of the Jefferson County Public School District for Louisville, Kentucky, who disappeared from distance learning programs after the COVID-19 outbreak kept children home. The vast majority of them are poor. Some are homeless. Many lack the high-speed access necessary to, quote, attend online classes or take and turn in school assignments. Some 7 million school-aged children in the United States live in homes without internet during a crisis when nearly all states have ordered or urged schools to close. America's digital divide is a long-standing problem, but the coronavirus pandemic has cast it in high relief. As in any crisis, this one offers also an opportunity. President Donald Trump wants the next coronavirus stimulus bill devoted in part to infrastructure, to generate jobs and boost the economy. And Democrats are seeking $80 billion to finally link rural and impoverished regions with high-speed internet. Much as government helped bring electricity to rural areas in previous decades, approving that relief package would be a great way to narrow the digital divide. Still, more could be done in the short term. The Federal Communications Commission has taken limited steps to preserve public online access. The centerpiece is a Keep Americans Connected pledge in which internet service providers have agreed, at least temporarily, to help, to help keep Americans connected during the pandemic. Comcast and other companies have followed through with greater internet access. But the FCC and its chairman, Ajit Pai, could do more. The commission could expand the Lifeline program that helps low-income Ameri- low Americans purchase broadband access. The $9.25 per month subsidy is dated, and the agency could double it with unspent Lifeline budget funds. 
Congress could boost it to a market-appropriate $50 per person month subsidy with an additional $8 billion in funding, allowing low-income users to access more than just mobile device services, which are impractical for a child's homework needs. The commission could also temporarily loosen lifeline rules to allow any of the 33 million Americans seeking unemployment and jobs to get high-speed internet access. School districts desperate to reconnect with lost students are lending out iPads and setting up Wi-Fi hotspots at football fields. The FCC could help. It has more than $2 billion in its E-Rate Education Fund established to extend broadband for K-12 classrooms. By broadening that definition to include where the classrooms are effectively now, in the children's homes, the FCC could use that money as intended. The digital divide is a miscarriage in the best of times. During a national crisis, it's intolerable. The opposing view on this topic today comes from Grover Norquist, who is president of Americans for Tax Reform. It's titled, We Don't Need to Subsidize Internet Service. Democrats want to take $80 billion from taxpayers to create a new Washington bureaucracy to shovel money to politicians who think they are qualified to run a broadband network. Funding, subsidizing, or otherwise creating a government competitor does not work. The last time politicians tried to sell this to Americans, they claimed state and municipal governments would build and run high-speed broadband profit-making centers. They tried and failed again and again. These massively subsidized efforts attracted corruption, often failed to deliver on promises, and were bailed out with even more taxpayer dollars. Google Kentucky Wired, or iProvo. Much of the Democrats' proposed $80 billion would go to prop up these failures. Another failure? Former President Barack Obama's regulators imposed net neutrality rules in 2015 that treated all internet providers as regulated public utilities. What happened? Capital investment from internet service providers declined for the first time since 2008 and 2009. When the FCC repealed net neutrality in 2017, broadband providers immediately increased investment with $80 billion pouring into the networks in 2018 alone. And that $80 billion did not come from taxpayers. Meanwhile, Europe has continued to regulate and, sub and subsidize. And, question mark, European operators reported an investment of only $104 per capita compared to the U.S.'s $249 per capita which means a long road ahead to reach parity with America. Wireline broadband connections are accessible to about 94% of Americans and 80% can access gigabit speeds. What about the 6% of Americans without fixed broadband? The Democrats are late to that game. Plenty of new high-speed competitors are lined up. The FCC, under Ajit Pai, has already approved satellite launches for next-generation satellite internet service and is on the cusp of approving the TV white spaces order. Both will bring a slew of new private competitors that cover the entire USA. Want to bet on who will reach rural America first? The new satellite competitors or the plans of politicians? 
And again, that piece comes from Grover Norquist, who is president of Americans for Tax Reform. On the opinion page here, we also have another political cartoon. This one is a scene inside a U.S. post office. And there is a post office worker, a woman with shoulder-length black hair, wearing a post office, short sleeve post office t-shirt, or um, excuse me, button-down uniform shirt and a face mask. And along with all of the post office logos on the walls, the signage there, there is a sign that says, the check is in the mail behind her. The customer at this post office is a woman wearing a face mask holding a letter in her hand. And also in front of the desk is a trash bin with a sign. We can see part of the writing on the sign and it says, neither rain nor gloom. And that sign is in the trash. The postal worker is saying to the customer who's getting ready to mail a letter with a major Trump contributor running the post office, we needed a new motto explaining why the old one is in the trash bin. I have time for a couple of the stories from the 50 states page in the USA Today. Iowa's is from Des Moines. It says residents are allowed to resume dental appointments after Governor Kim Reynolds made more moves Wednesday to ease restrictions imposed to slow the coronavirus' spread. She also allowed public and private campgrounds to reopen, ended closure orders for tanning facilities, and made clear that drive-in movie theaters could operate. The changes are effective Friday. And from some surrounding states in Kansas, from Topeka, the legislature will focus on the fallout from the coronavirus when it reconvenes for a single day, May 21st, to wrap up the 2020 session, lawmakers said. In Missouri, St. Joseph, an employee of a pork plant where hundreds of workers tested positive for the coronavirus has died from the virus. And in Minnesota, from Minneapolis, Minnesotans should fish close to home to help curb the coronavirus pandemic when the walleye season opens this weekend, avoiding overnight stays and driving no farther than they can go on one tank of gas, Department of Natural Resources officials say. A surge in fishing license sales indicates many Minnesotans are getting antsy under the state's stay-at-home order and really want to hit the lakes. That's it for our second hour of the Register on Iris. We're so glad to have you listening. I'm your reader, Dale Finnegan. Coming up next, obituaries from the Des Moines Register.